Right, so uh, this is Zach Steele, Global Ambassador for ISTSS 2019. I'm here with Ken, Brian and, and Andrew. Um, and we just went to a session looking at you know, the enormous uh, issue that faces the mental health community with the global crisis in forced displacement with you know, 70 million people currently being displaced internally or externally. Um, you guys have all been working in this field for a long time now. Um, we've been creating all different kinds of evidence bases, but uh, as we sort of approach the field, it's just enormity is overwhelming. Um, and what do you think are some of the ways that we can go forward and, and be part of finding a response and a solution to some of these problems? So. Um, Ken, I'll throw it to you on that one. Can you restate that question? <laughs> I'm taking in that question. Can you just say that again? Yeah, so, you know, we've got this issue of this enormous displacement, and we know that, you know, rates of mental distress are often quite high <coughs> as people live in these, you know, luminal circumstances, they don't know their future, they come from a traumatic past, they've got family dislocation, um, and I suppose as mental health communities we've recognised that this is something that we know how to do, uh, we do know how to work with people in distress, but, um, you know, what do we need to do to take this forward? You know, we've got, you know, the last, um, now if we look at the last 30 or 40 years, we've established that one, there is a need, Mm -hmm. There is a level of distress. Two, we've identified some candidate interventions that can do some work. Um, so where to next? I think I think of it in, in terms of um, three levels of work. It's sort of the individual level of kind of clinical work. We're pretty good at that. Um, I, 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 you know, developing trauma treatment programs, programs for other types of distress. I think about sort of community level work to deal with the, 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 the kind of current stressors that people are dealing with and that shape the context for healing and recovery. We're not so good at that. There was a community psychiatry movement that came and went to a great extent that looked at social determinants, <coughs> poverty, uh, racism, discrimination, marginalization. And at that um, Oh, I, 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 I think that's an enormous loss. Uh, psychiatry got more and more medicalized and individualized. Community psychology, uh, which was the first cousin of community psychiatry, had, had the same kind of radical agenda, radical agenda. Let's look at the social determinants and target them. Let's, you know, let's, let's not medicalize old people in retirement communities who are depressed because they feel disempowered and lonely, let's give them greater control over their day-to-day -day lives, and boom, depression goes down. But community psychology has struggled to move out of the margins, and, and, and by and large doesn't deal with the issues of forced migration and, and, and armed conflict. So this second level for me, I think we need, you know, uh, to move out of the clinic and into the community. You said this so beautifully. We need to be engaged at the community level. And we need to be in the communities. And we need not to move away from the individual work. That matters. There's always a place for helping people heal. But we need to help communities. And we need to target 
the community level determines. And then the, the last level, I think Alexander Betts has gotten that. Alexander Betts, an anthropologist, uh, I think he was the head of the Refugee Studies Center at Oxford. Um, he's not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but he has argued for the profound impact of uh, labor policies uh, on refugees. That almost everywhere you go, what you see is refugees aren't allowed to work. Now, if we put on a community psych hat, what we see is <coughs> unemployment, worsens poverty, increases dependence, which particularly for traditional cultures where men are meant to provide and protect, they can't. So then you see increased rates of distress among men, which leads to increased rates of substance abuse, uh, family violence, which leads to increased rates of depression and trauma among women and children. And then we come in with our individual treatments. I think the third level we need to be working at is a policy level. Now, it's really hard when there's a growing populist kind of movement globally that has very, that's an anti-intellectual movement, anti-data, anti anti-evidence. But nonetheless, I think that is the, the third level that we need to be working at. If I could do one thing to improve the well-being, maybe two things to improve the well-being of uh, asylum seekers, refugees, migrants, I, I, one is for people who are, uh, for, for refugees, I, I, I would absolutely change labor policy. Let people work. I think you would probably have a bigger impact on mental health than any other single intervention. Let people work. Um, and let them work legally above board and have the protections that come from legal employment. You will reduce poverty, you'll, you'll restore dignity, uh, and you will let people build lives again. The second thing I would do uh, is, uh, I would absolutely minimize the detention of asylum seekers to the barest, barest essential uh, and, and humanize the ways in which we do that. Most people seeking asylum uh, do not need to be detained are not meant to be detained. In US law, they're not, it's, it's meant to be used absolutely minimally. We, we treat asylum seekers as criminals. And I think you can have an enormous impact uh, simply by changing how we use detention, minimizing its use to the, to the barest necessity. Uh, and it, what's interesting, both of those approaches are not psychological approaches. But the, the thing that psychologists, I think, and psychiatrists often forget is that sometimes the biggest impact on psychological well-being doesn't come from traditional psychological interventions. So, yes, and thanks for reminding us about you know that legacy of you know community psychology and psychiatry, which has been lost. You know, we've turned to the biopsychosocial into the biopsycho, and the and the psychologists had to fight tooth and nail to survive by using the methodologies of our biological colleagues to be on the same standing foot and our, our social colleagues haven't been able to do that so they've lost their foot but you know it's just really good to think at that level um, and Brian that sort of brings me to sort of think about your talk and you know one of the groups that we've been here talking about communities affected by forced displacement but you've actually been often looking at those that have exposed to sort of almost conditions of indentured servitude you know through in their employment, labour and conditions 
and you've tried to bring a little bit more of a, a broader focus to that. Why don't you just talk a little bit about that and, that, and, the, and how you've applied this idea of the social there? I think, um, th thanks for that. I, th I think that uh, population health is a lens that I think is really useful. Uh, and mental health and well-being is just, mental health is just one component of overall health. And I think we oftentimes are too siloed in thinking about uh, looking at disorders and looking at, you know, PTSD is a PTSD conference and people are really focused on PTSD. Uh, but there's a lot of comorbidity, a lot of things that are happening, not only just disorder-based comorbidity, uh, but also uh, issues of physical health and other impairments. And that's largely been neglected. And I think looking at uh, issues of also infectious disease. So taking a really like a global health lens uh, and migration uh, could be really helpful. Uh, in terms of social, the social aspects, um, in particular, I think looking at social networks in a really like fine-grained or detailed way, I think is, is really also really useful uh, because we can understand more about the processes that are happening in the community, who actually is being relied on for support, what kind of support is, is, is useful. And some of the work that we've done uh, with migrant domestic workers uh, in China was actually finding that the more social network supports that they said they had, the more distressed they were as their stressors increased. So I think you know that really challenged the idea that social support is always a beneficial thing, or numbers of social support uh, network members is always a, a beneficial uh, value add. And it, it isn't uh, when you're looking at populations that have protracted uh, context of stress and they're not really uh, they're kind of coping together in situations that they can't change. Again, you know, talking about uh, what Ken was just mentioning about the social factors, social determinants, so how would we actually change the factors uh, that would improve improve health? So when people are co-ruminating together um, and are under a, a significant amount of burden of not being able to change the things that are causing them distress, uh, that exacerbates distress. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, moving at the policy level is actually really important. Thanks for that. I suppose the, the, the big thing we all challenge, though, is at the end of the day, we're faced with the individual. You know, so you know, we can see this, you know, but in our day-to-day -day work and if we're working in communities or we're working in clinics, you know, we do have this. And so, you know, we do at some time sort of come back to the need for individual... In, you know, we can't escape the need for something to give to people that we're working with. And I know, I, I mean, this is some of the work that you've been doing with some of the Eritrean and uh, other refugees that have been sort of seeking asylum in Israel. Um, and that's been a long process of trying to develop a response to them. So what, what have you found that has, you know, to, when people turn up and they're just in states of distress, and it'd be great to solve these social policies, but you've also got to do something on the day, yeah? So our work, and this is work by um, um, my Observing Minds Lab at the University of Haifa and students and um, quite a few members and leaders of the Eritrean Sudanese um, asylum seeker community in Israel. Um, <clears throat> we haven't worked um, our, ourselves in an uh, acute emergency response clinic. Um, we collaborate with folks who are um, NGOs, who are um, really, um, I think one way of saying is doing God's work, um, who are taking care of each individual from crisis to crisis. 
um, Kuchinate and Asaf and Gesher Clinic and a whole host of these um, organizations under very challenging circumstances, basically um, doing the best they can with what they know to respond effectively. Our approach in terms of our group has been much narrower and much more modest, but I do think it's important, which is we have um, tried to quite systematically approach the question of um, if what might you do, what kind of intervention or interventions could you develop that are safe, that are that actually work, that impact multiple important outcomes in this ecosystem that we're talking about and the lives of these asylum seekers, um, but also that are, in fact, feasible, acceptable in multiple communities, um, and ultimately, tr as much as possible, transcend culture, transcend language. Um, one, one of the things that you found that really surprised me was that the, the because I know you've been using M, M CBT, so mindfulness-based treatments, that you know um, the people that benefited the most, um, uh, you know, because we don't think of mindfulness-based treatments as something that might be able to help when people are facing multiple Correct. threats in there, but you actually found a bit of a paradoxical effect there. So who benefited the most, did you find? So we developed, um, it's a mindfulness and compassion-focused uh, intervention that's socio-culturally adapted for diverse, um, uh, forcibly displaced people and also is trauma-sensitive to ensure that the various intervention components like mindfulness and meditation um, don't do harm. And um, although our initial intention and goal was just to give these men and women the same kind of moments that I have at home with my family um, of just safety and refuge and love and compassion that I think everyone deserves um, to have. It's a human right. We, we also hoped that those moments would translate to a, a longer process of recovery and healing. And one of the things that we found was precisely those asylum seekers that we most worried about with the most severe trauma history and post-migration, living difficulties and daily stressors, and in fact also symptomatology, demonstrated really l large therapeutic curative effects over the course of this um, nine-week intervention. And they also, we also did a phenomenological qualitative study as a kind of arm of this of, with one cohort. And it was very clear, um, not for all of them, but for some of them it was um, deeply transformative. It's the language they mm -hmm. used talking about how they, they may be, for example, still angry, and I think justifiably so, but now they have freedom or liberty to choose how to respond to that experience, to that anger. Um, and so I think that there's something um, very, very liberating about um, doing about doing this kind of work with asylum seekers, including those that really seem the most fragile and vulnerable. Yeah. Can I just respond? Yeah, yeah, yeah One of the the ways that we connected, uh, uh, you know, Amin and I was uh, 
we're running, we just finished the pilot RCT starting a, a full RCT now of a very similar kind of intervention for Syrian refugee parents that has, uh, it focuses on their own well-being primarily and then layers on parenting stuff in the second half. But that throughout the whole intervention, we have a very strong focus on mindfulness. We, we, we spend 25% of every two-hour session, uh, it's a group intervention, um, going over that week's home practice of, of the various mindfulness activities they're using. They're all available in Arabic. And, you know, you, know, you look at the effect sizes from the pilot study. We just did within group because it's a pilot. And, and the effect sizes are all in the medium to medium large size. But I, I wasn't th thrilled with the actual magnitude of change. And then when we looked at the focus group data, it was incredibly moving. Uh, you know, you, it's exactly what we found is what you found. And, and we found people speaking in, in almost transformative language about, and the, and, the, and the key thing seems to be that you create this space right between the distress and some sort of reaction and in that space uh, there's an opportunity to respond differently uh, to lower arousal to interact differently with one's spouse to take the perspective of a child this great story of this uh, one father the kid came home late to dinner and the father was about to smack the kid and then he stopped and he, and he did the 10 breath thing. He mm. just took 10 slow breaths. And instead of hitting the kid, he said, why did you come home late? And the kid said, well, I got beaten up on the way home. Well, the next day he took his kid to work with him for the day and, and the two of them just spent the day together. And it was the beginning of a shift in their relationship but you can trace it back to his ability to create a space. It's really, it's really powerful. And I love what you say about creating safety within your own self, within your own body, and then within your home. And that, that is profound, even in situations where there's instability. And that surprised me, because I remember, you know, we, Syrian refugees have no idea what their future holds, and their lives are on perpetual hold, and their lives are hard. And at first, the men would say to us, well, you know, this mindfulness, whatever language, these relaxation exercises, look, we're poor. That's our problem. You know, by week eight, they'd go, wow, this has really made a difference. Like, it hasn't taken away our poverty, but our lives feel better. So I'm, I'm wondering if um, what I was thinking this when, when uh, you were talking, and then as you were talking, I was like, oh, this is sort of reinforcing. I'm wondering if what... Uh, what both of you are doing are uh, taking that chunk of uh, displaced people who uh, would meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder um, and uh, you're providing, you're taking that chunk and, and really uh, dividing it into a group of people who just need some time to talk and some way to, to uh, re-engage their 
sort of natural healing processes, as we say, the type of things that would be engaged under most circumstances, like if you had PTSD in, in the U.S. and you were from a middle income and, you know, you could, you wouldn't ever develop PTSD, right? Because within the first few, uh, within the month after the trauma, you would engage all those processes. Right. And, 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 then, and then those who are left over may still have, may still be in great need. This is something we talked about, uh, Ken, you and I talked about uh, in the initial draft of our stress paper, and we sort of backed off on a little bit because we said maybe, it, maybe it's a graded uh, therapy where first we address the stressors and then we address the PTSD. Well, here what's happening is uh, you both are addressing the reactions to the stressors and trying to uh, reduce the um, extreme responses to the stressors, and then you, there's still people who need targeted, maybe even something like a TFCBT, right? Trauma-focused CBT, maybe. Um, but, but most people who would otherwise qualify for post-traumatic stress because their lives are still uh, highly reactive to all sorts of stressors, um, maybe this is a, a way to, a step towards um, uh, working with those folks who in other situations wouldn't have developed such an issue. Andrew, that's great. And, you know, I think that um, really summarizes the kind of dilemma that we're in. Mm -hmm. we're, now, we're going to have to draw the podcast to a close, but thank you sure. all for joining me here today. Uh, it's been really uh, insightful to hear your reflections and uh, long work in this field. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.